Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Now, as most of you all have probably picked up by now, Molly and I write for a website called HowStuffWorks.com. However, we are not owned by HowStuffWorks.com. We're actually owned by a company called Discovery Communications that owns channels such as Discovery Channel, TLC, Animal Planet, and a channel you might not have heard of called Investigation Discovery. And because we have this cool discovery hookup, we were able to get a sneak peek at a new show that's going to be on Investigation Discovery this fall. It's called Facing Evil with Candace DeLong. And we got to interview Candace DeLong herself. Yes, Candace DeLong was an FBI profiler who has been referred to as the real Clarice from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, the Jodie Foster character. Mm-hmm. Um, because she did do so much work with the FBI and uh, profiling. And in this show, she's going to sit down and talk to women who have killed. And this is something we've touched on briefly in our episode about the gender gap in crime. Um, but Candace Long is going to take a much more in-depth look. And she gave us um, some sneak peeks at what we can expect from this new show and really develop this idea much further, given the amount of experience she has. So Let's learn a little bit about Candace DeLong. We were excited to actually have the opportunity to interview her because she has over 40 years of experience. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead of Candace. And I've been reading her book, Special Agent by Candace DeLong, and it's her memoir of time in the FBI. And she's been involved in some really, really cool stuff. So this is a lady who, who knows the mind of a criminal. She does. And she started out as a psychiatric nurse, as she will tell us a little bit about right now. I was a psychiatric nurse for a decade before the FBI, before I went in the FBI. In fact, when the FBI recruited me, I was head nurse at the Institute of Psychiatry in Chicago. And I had been doing it for 10 years. And 
one of the things, I mean, the average day in the life of a psychiatric nurse, and most of my career was in maximum security, in, in an average eight-hour day, you're spending the vast majority of your time talking with your patients, listening to your patients, dealing with their families, and you see people at their absolute worst, and you hear unbelievable things. You see things that happen to the, I mean, a lot of people that are victimized by other people end up in psychiatric units, sometimes decades after the victimization. And sometimes we would get people accused of really unspeakable crimes into the psych unit for 30 days of observation and treatment. Um, so by the time I was recruited by the FBI, I had seen a lot and had learned a lot about human nature. And in particular, um, how to interview, how to listen, um, how to not um, show the horror on your face that you're feeling in your heart after something someone told you. Um, in addition to that, being able to, and this is where the FBI helped me years later, being able to discern a lie uh, or an untruth or a faulty memory or things like that. Now, in her book, uh, DeLong writes about how she was one of the first female agents in the FBI. She writes about some of the troubles she came across in terms of discrimination, in terms of guys not quite ready to accept her as their peer yet. And so it definitely wasn't all smooth sailing in those early days in the FBI. When I went to the FBI Academy uh, back in 1980, it, um, women were fairly new in uh in terms of being special agents and therefore going to the academy. And um, we weren't really all that welcome by everybody. A lot of, a lot of uh, the men considered us unwelcome gate crashers. I think what got me through it was I was raised uh, with three brothers, <laughs> no sisters. My father had been a, uh, just gotten out of the Navy World War II, and my grandfather lived with it. I was raised in a male-dominated home. And uh, where there was a lot of teasing and whatnot, so I learned to to not be a victim, to <laughs> to give it right back. And I've got a good sense of humor, so that kind of carried me through. I don't think the things that happened uh, to women and sub and also minorities at the FBI and at the academy and then out in the field, they just don't happen anymore. I didn't. I pretty much stopped seeing that kind of nonsense the last ten years of my career. And. For young female agents that I know now, I just don't hear those complaints at all. Now, since Candace DeLong has so much experience and she has profiled so many different types of criminals. I mean, Molly, you know of some some pretty high profile criminals that she's gone after, right? Yeah, she was involved uh, with the team that brought down the Unabomber. And uh, she was I mean, the cases she was uh, involved in, she's tracked terrorists. She's tracked rapists. She's tracked gangsters. I mean, Reading her book did give me the creeps a little bit just because there were a lot of criminals for Candace DeLong to take down. So um, I think that, you know, if you're going to get someone to profile criminals on investigation discovery, she's your woman. She's the lady to do it. So she's going to tell us a little bit about um, what the show is about and the types of interviews that she's doing with these female criminals. All of that came into play. By the time I sat down to interview these women this past um spring and summer, I had about 40 years of experience going for me. And I think all of that really helped these women feel calm and not threatened by me. And and three of the four of them had to be coaxed uh, by me to be on the show, that I wasn't going to hurt them. 
um, and we weren't there to make them look bad, that I was there to get to know them and for the audience to get to know how does a, a nice, you know, what was once a nice girl with dreams of of maybe becoming a nurse in one case or or a teacher um, who gets a college education, who falls in love with someone, how does she end up on on serving life in prison without parole? How did that happen? Because the, the, the vast majority of cases that we represent on, I think, both shows, Deadly Women and Facing Evil with Candace DeLong, are women that, that could be your neighbor. These are not natural-born killers. And that really echoes a lot of things that we talked about, Kristen, when we did do that gender gap and crime podcast, that there are um, really differences in the reasons that men and women go about committing crime. And this show is going to focus specifically on women who kill. And of course, that appealed to Molly and me because we like to, you know, dissect women you know, up, down, and sideways. And men. And, and men, well, and men too. But specifically since this has to do with lady killers, we wanted, or, or women who commit premeditated murder, more formally, uh, we wanted to talk to Candace about any differences that she's noticed between male and female killers. And these are murderers specifically that she is talking about. And it's interesting because while there are a couple of differences in the way that they um, will carry out their crimes, there are also a lot of similarities in terms of, uh, I guess, kind of how they mentally process the whole thing. So here's Candace on the difference between f- male and female killers. When women kill, um, the act, for, the, for the most part, yes, there's exceptions, but when women kill, especially premeditated um uh, murder. It is the the murder itself is is just something that has to be done to get to where they want to be. It's a means to an end, and and they don't necessarily. The part of being a, a sociopath, also known as psychopath, also known as antisocial personality disorder, basically someone who has no empathy for others, and who, they they tend to be users and abusers. But one of the characteristics of that particular personality disorder if you're a sociopath, is these people start lying when they're about three, four years old. They will lie when the truth is easier. They are the little kid that mom hears a noise in the kitchen. She goes in the kitchen. The kid is standing on a step stool, arm in the cookie jar, down to its elbow. And mom says, I told you you couldn't have a cookie. And the kid turns around with raisins and chocolate crumbs on his face and says, I'm not. They lie. They start lying as kids. And now if a mom laughs at that, and I I admit that's pretty funny, um, you just bought the kid their next lie because you reinforced it by by laughing. So those are the differences between how men and women commit a murder. Now, someone like Candace is going to get involved when obviously they're trying to track this person down and she would be involved with creating a profile of who this person is and and finding that person. Now, I think we all want to know, is there is there a gender that's going to be more likely to be caught out for their crimes? If mm-hmm. you're in there in the police station facing the questioning, someone's pulling the good cop, bad cop on you, who's more likely to crack? Who's doing a better job at holding up an alibi? So we asked Candace Salong, 
Who's the better liar when it comes to these criminals, men or women? And interestingly, you know, with this kind of uh, pathology, it really doesn't come down to gender. It's all about just the mind of a psychopath. So let's hear her on this. Lying behavior for a sociopath is it makes them feel momentarily superior to others. They actually believe a couple of things when they tell a lie. Number one, well, they believe a few things. Number one is, I'm going to lie to you and you're going to believe me. The reason you're going to believe me is I'm very good at lying and you're stupid. That's what they believe. So when they tell a lie, hey, honey, I told you you couldn't have a cookie. I'm not having a cookie. Isn't that your arm in the cookie jar? No. And then they just get up and walk away. Um, They believe there's this sense of ego that they are superior to us stupid people and therefore you will buy what they say. Now, also when it comes to motivations, it seems like from what Candace told us, there is one big theme that drives both male and female killers. And that is love. Love combined with different facets like money, mm-hmm. how many people are involved in a love triangle? Yeah. Candace, a love rectangle? Yeah. If, lo- if Candace DeLong were to offer you any kind of relationship advice, it would be stay away from love triangles. But sometimes you don't know if you're in a love triangle. You might not. And then you end up dead. So before Krista and I just get too, too wound up thinking about if we're possibly in love triangles we don't know about, here's Candace DeLong. Room of 100 female killers in it. Um, the vast majority killed someone for money, for profit. Um, now, some of them may kill because... Husband has a life insurance policy of $5 million, and some of them will kill because they want their boyfriend's motorcycle. I mean, there's a broad spectrum of, of what one would consider the riches or the spoils of a murder. That's the, that's a real common reason. Um, the number one motivator of murder in general, male or female, is jealousy, romantic jealousy. And that is when we tend to get into your... Um, uh, cases where you have uh, uh, love triangles where someone has been jolted. It, it, love triangles are dangerous for all three people. If, every, if, you, if you're in a love triangle, and some people are in a love triangle and don't know it, usually one party in the love triangle does not know they're in a love triangle, and that's the person who's being cheated upon, and their life could be in danger. The person who is cheating on their partner's life may be in danger by two other people, and then the person, the third party's life may be in danger. If, if so, there's, so there's all this crazy stuff. In fact, I wrote an article for Cosmo magazine a few years ago about this very thin thing. So jealous, romantic jealousy is, is a very strong motivator. Now, of course, since we're talking about women who kill, we have to talk about the subset of women killers, lady killers, and that is mothers who kill their children. And I think, Molly, if there's any type of murder that is maybe, that maybe attracts more public outrage, it is mothers who kill their children because it's like, it's, it's something that the public just doesn't grasp, you know, because we, it's, it goes completely against this idea of the nurturing caregiver. And one case in particular that we brought up with Candace DeLong was the Andrea Yates case. And if you don't remember, this is where, uh, this mother who had mental problems drowned five of her children in 2001. And it just, you know, the press surrounding this case, I still remember it just like you said, Kristen, it was people just could not fathom that this would happen. 
And like you said, Kristen, people just could not fathom that this would happen. And so in talking about mothers who kill their children and their motivations and the concept of mental illness, uh, Candace DeLong had this to say. Mothers killing kids, um, more often it's not the Andrea Yates's, um, although schizophrenics. Um, it, it's w- Shortly after the Andrea Yates case, a woman here in San Francisco, a uh, young woman in her 20s, had three little kids, uh, untreated schizophrenia, and she kept having kids. Uh, and one evening, a beautiful summer evening here, she went down to the bay and one by one took her kids out of the car and just dropped them in the water, and they drown with people watching. You know, because when people see stuff like that, they tend to not, it doesn't register. They they can't believe their eyes, and by the time they're moved to, into action, it's too late. Um, so here was a case of of a woman with with uh, once again, uh, I I don't know her exact reason, um, but uh, yeah, untreated schizophrenia. It's dangerous for schizophrenics to be raising children. Um, but that's the, that's the unusual type of murders. The, va- the more common type of murders are when mother murder, mothers murder their kids is their kids have become inconvenient and they don't want them around. For example, I, we've all, we all know about the Suzanne Smith case. You know, she uh, was bed hopping. Um, she, her life was not – her image, her, her ego required – the sexual attention of a man pretty much at all times. And she wanted to date a guy at work that didn't want anything to do with her because he wrote her letter, said, I don't want a ready-made family. And she took those two beautiful little boys, strapped them in their car seats, and uh, sent the car into the lake. And then went, called the police and said a black guy came and took her car and her kids. And then it all fell apart a year, a year, uh, a month later. Was she mentally ill? No. What I don't understand is why didn't she just call her ex-husband and say, I don't want the kids anymore, you take them? What I don't understand, and what I think is a fascinating subject, and sometimes we have discussed this on the show, is that would be the easy thing, but there's a motivation behind why women don't do that. And it all has to do with making themselves look like a victim to the world. um, Murder is easier than being seen as a mother who doesn't want her own kids. And our society does that. You know, our society, you know, uh, that's one of the worst things. Our society, oh, mother doesn't love her kids, doesn't want to raise her kids. Oh, horrible person, horrible person. So sometimes we see these mothers uh, killing their own kids uh, because um, it's a way of getting what they want, which is not to be a mother and sympathy from the community. Oh, my gosh, a big bad boogeyman came and took her kids. Oh, don't we feel badly for her? You know, so there's all kinds of all kinds of reasons in there, and they're all fascinating, I think. So now listening to Candace DeLong describe the Andrea Yates case, it really reminded me of when we did our podcast on female criminals before, Kristen, because we talked about how you can find sort of a a reason or a motivation in these women's past. And it's not an excuse per se, because they're still doing crimes, but there is usually something that kind of, you know, it's like an asterisk next to the act Mm -hmm. and reminding you how women can end up doing this. And so uh, we asked her to elaborate a little bit more on the role of mental illness in this case. In a really compassionate society, we do not execute the mentally ill on the mentally retarded when they commit a crime as horrible as crimes are, but the Andrea's problem and, and, and other people that have killed their children, 
whether they're related to the person or not, whether it's a stranger that comes out and grabs a little girl and drives off with her and rapes her and murders her. I just described a case I worked when I was a young agent or uh, an Andrea Yates type of child murder. Um, the, the problem is the public, the community wants revenge. When a child is murdered, the public wants someone to pay for it. And it's probably going to be whoever is sitting at the defendant's table, whether they did it or not. Of course, there's no dispute that Andrea Yates killed her kids. After she did, she called the police and said, you need to come over. I killed the kids. And she called her husband, honey, you need to come home. I just killed the kids. Uh, She didn't try to hide it because she believed what she did was the right thing to do to save the children for Jesus. Jesus. So um, I don't think Andrea Yates should be walking around And I don't think if she ever gets out uh, that she should be put in charge of a Montessori school. Her delusion, delusions that schizophrenics have, they have them their whole life. So is is the general public safe from Andrea Yates were she to be released? Yes, as long as you're not a child. Because the rest of Andrea's life, even with medication, she's still going to believe that she's a bad mother, that she's a bad influence on little children. The devil will get them unless she sends them to heaven. And that's just the way delusions are. And speaking of Andrea Yates, we wanted um, Candace DeLong to elaborate more on this idea of the postpartum defense, because it's something that we've seen come up more often in higher profile cases of mothers killing their children. And, um, uh, we also wanted to know how these psychiatric defenses play a role as well, because once you, you know, when you throw mental illness into the mix, you know, if someone is compelled because of schizophrenia, say, to murder someone, should they be, um, you know, should they be up for, say, execution of some sort? I mean, it, it just starts to pull in some pretty tricky questions for uh, for the criminal justice system. So this is what Candace DeLong has to say about that. Uh, We are seeing more people use psychiatric defenses, but here's the big clue, and and this is where my clinical background comes in. The vast majority of people that are mentally ill do not commit violent crimes, when or murder in particular. When they do, there is a clear, visible, long-standing history of mental illness that is generally documented. People that suffer from schizophrenia, it usually surfaces and they have their first psychotic break or psychotic postpartum depression in this case in their late teens, early 20s. And untreated, it can grow. And so generally, we don't see teenage schizophrenics committing horrible crimes but we see schizophrenics in their late 20s, early 30s, if they are going to be compelled to commit some kind of horrible crime, and Andrea Yates isn't the only one that did this kind of thing, then we generally see that after they've been in and out of psych facilities, there's a long documented paper trail of their illness. And so if somebody decides they just don't want to be a mom anymore, that their two kids, uh, we have another South Carolina case last week of a woman that killed her two kids in a lake, um, Uh, And they go, oh, uh, I had a depression or, you know, well, chances are, unless it's documented and and depression, 
does on occasion lead mothers to kill children and then themselves. We've, we've even had cases on, on deadly women of, of mothers that did this. Um, but psychosis is a whole different thing. So what I'm saying is, as a prosecutor, it's going to be easy to determine if the person's lying or not. For a defense attorney, it will be easy to determine if they actually do have a, a history of mental illness. And, and does I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I don't think people that are mentally ill that commit murder should be out walking around, but they certainly shouldn't be in prison, in prison being beaten and abused and raped and mistreated when it was their mental illness, which is an affliction. It, it absolutely is an affliction, and and they should be in a they should be in a maximum security psychiatric facility, where at least they'll be able to get medication and maybe won't be beaten and raped for the rest of their life. So obviously, for someone like DeLong, who has forty years of experience, when she sits down and talks to these female killers, these convicted killers for the show coming up on Investigation Discovery, you know, there has to be so, she has to look at them so differently than maybe you or I would, Molly. She has to understand all of this background of potential mental illness and the slippery slope that can happen sometimes for people to end up, you know, from the good girl, if you will, to all of a sudden the convicted criminal. So it seems like she really takes a more empathetic view of them and perhaps even just by virtue of her being a woman sitting down and talking to a woman, there are certain shared you know, experiences that might play into it. So uh, Candace, talk to us a little bit about how empathy can come into profiling and interviewing the women on the show. Even though I may shake my head and say to myself, there, this doesn't make sense that such a smart woman could be led by a man and, and, and convinced by him to kill his wife this woman, this is a smart woman. Why would she do that? You know, and, uh, well, I can, love's a funny thing, ladies. <laughs> so I do feel, I do feel empathy. And, and in particular, the, the woman in, um, Australia, um, that served time for killing her father, when you hear her whole story, you'll have empathy too. This is not an evil woman. This is a woman that was led to, that, that was compelled to do an evil thing. Andrea Yates, let's look at that for a minute. The, 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 probably the most famous, um, postpartum depression psychosis case uh, in the United States for sure. Drowned all her children. It was about nine years ago this summer. Drowned all her children one by one. She was compelled to do that evil thing because she, of an untreated mental illness and she was delusional and she really believed she was sending her children to Jesus so the devil wouldn't get them. I worked with people that think like that as a nurse. That's schizophrenia. Um, so here you've got this horrible evil deed and the first prosecutor on the case wanted a needle in her arm when in fact she was compelled to do what she did because of mental illness. So it was an evil deed, but is she an evil person? I don't think so. Now, the interesting thing was, as part of uh, as part of these interviews, Candace Long mentioned that there was this one Australian case. There's one uh, case that she profiles on the show where she sits down and talks to this Australian woman who was convicted of murder. And she said it was the most fascinating interview that she has done in 40 years of work profiling criminals. So we thought that this would be the perfect way to end the podcast, let Candace um, tease to this pretty uh, pretty powerful interview from what she has to say about it. Well, when you 
see her story. She's 30 now. Um, she served six years in prison for solicita- solicitation of the murder of her father, um, who was murdered by her um, uh, then um, boyfriend when, when they were, I think, uh, 17. But there is a uh, catch, I suppose you might say. Children that kill parents, with rare exception, we do have the Menendez brothers types in the world. That that would be known as a nihilistic killing. There was really no good reason at all for those boys to do what they did. Uh, they wanted the money. But with rare exception, when children kill parents or a child kills a parent, um, and, and that child is, you know, in, in their teens or adolescence, you can almost always look into the background and you will find severe abuse, uh, emotional, physical, and, and, and frequently sexual as well. So by the time the viewer understands what this, what happened to this woman, by the time she sat down with me, and at this point she's been released from prison for several years, um, you have a real clear understanding of, of uh, what her, her background was like and what led up to um, the murder. And she, what I'm very proud of the fact is she was so comfortable with me that, I don't want to tell you, you you're just going to have to watch it. Uh, she was so comfortable with me that she said some rather incredible things, uh, things that I've never seen anyone say on television before. And she's also a very likable person. I liked her a lot. She's not a natural-born killer. She... Um, uh, found herself in ongoing circumstances that all led to a situation, and uh, it is what it is, and it's absolutely fascinating. So that was the bulk of our interview with Candace DeLong, and uh, didn't hear much from us this episode, but when you've got someone as fascinating as Candace DeLong on the other end of the line, you want to learn as much as you can about about these lady killers, as we've dubbed them. Yeah, let us know what you thought. I mean, I, I, I think it was a pretty fascinating conversation. And some things, she said some things that I didn't expect her to say either. So we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget to tune in to Facing Evil with Candace DeLong. It airs Thursday, November 25th, Friday, November 26th at 10 p.m. each night on Investigation Discovery. Sounds like perfect Thanksgiving viewing. Indeed. Just some, some light television viewing about serial killers. So, in the meantime, let's read some listener mail. Now, wait, 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 Kristen. Before we get into listener mail, jump too soon. We've got a pretty cool announcement we need to go over about the app that HowStuffWorks.com has. That's right. HowStuffWorks.com has a brand new app that you can download on your iPhone. You can access HowStuffWorks.com articles, videos, blogs, and, of course, the podcast. You know, because if, if we haven't saturated your life enough, right? we need to make sure we're there whenever you're on the go. So right. you never have to leave home without us. So download that app. Check it out. I mean, there might be some, uh, I don't know, maybe some f- pictures of you and me, Molly. I don't want to promise anything. Yeah, that's true. But you'll have to find out for yourself. So yeah. download the app, uh, HowStuffWorks.com's new iPhone app. And now we can get back to listener mail. And this email is from Laura. It's from the Do Men and Women Cook Differently episode. And Laura writes, I'm a mom to one boy and one girl. Early on, with no prodding from me or their dad, I noticed the kids treating their gender-neutral play kitchen differently. 
My daughter cooked meals with the primary focus being to get food in front of her multitude of dolls and babies. She fed them and cleaned them and fussed at them for throwing food on the floor. For her, food was nurturing. My son, however, cooked grandiose meals with multiple courses and plenty of spice and flourish. Some of the combinations he came up with for dishes sounded good enough to eat, even if they were rendered in plastic. Even now, in their tween years, my daughter is at heart a parent and teacher, and when she cooks, for real these days, it's mom food. My son, a scientist to the core, is interested in the chemistry and flavor and presentation of each dish. So, very interesting to hear how those gender differences can take hold early. All right, I've got one here from Diana, and she is writing in response to our episode on Chinese foot binding. And she makes corsets. She's been doing it for 17 years, and she wanted to point out that while, yes, corset wearing and foot binding have some similarities in that they both are practices that many of us find unusual today, she says the similarities stop there. She says mostly corset wearing was often only a daytime practice and the corset would be removed during sleep and bathing, allowing the body some rest instead of being constricted all day long every day. Most corsets were not worn very tightly at all, but a few women did enjoy cinching it as small as possible. Before the Industrial Revolution, most corsets were custom-made to measure and were very comfortable to wear with little health problems as a result. With a properly custom-crafted corset, women could achieve incredibly tiny waists with little discomfort or ill health. Off-the-rack corsets that were sold according to desired waist size alone caused problems for many women, like discomfort, shortness of breath, and even some broken ribs. She says corsets are still worn today a great deal for both extreme tight lacing and moderate wear by men and women. And as always, custom is safer and more comfortable. So thank you, Diana, the corset maker. That's fascinating. I didn't even realize that that was a profession still. Perhaps a follow-up podcast. Perhaps. So keep your emails coming. It's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can share your thoughts with other listeners as well on our Facebook page. And then you can follow us on Twitter. It's momstuffpodcast. And then finally, we got a little blog, and it's called Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it's at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 